Well, with me on the Godcast today, I'm delighted to say that I'm joined by Morgan Godvin. And uh, Morgan is uh, from Portland in America. Now, Morgan is, uh, sorry, uh, Morgan's got a wonderful story. Um, um, and, well, a good ending at the moment, so perhaps not a wonderful journey, but uh, we'll get to that in a moment. But when, uh, when Morgan was 19, she joined the Royal Air Force and she got hurt in basic training. And that, uh, and that resulted um, in her um, uh, developing a, an opiate disorder um, and spent several years um, actually addicted to heroin. Um, she was smoking and then injecting, but um, uh, Morgan tells the story of how she struggled to get access to uh, detox and treatment, and the treatment she did get was uh, not of a great standard. She overdosed many times, but miraculously she was always found and revived. And at the age of just 23, Morgan was ar arrested and she was convic convicted of felony with possession of heroin. And she was jailed repeatedly, and at 24, sadly, her mum passed away unexpectedly from prescription drug overdose. Six months later, Morgan was arrested uh, result, um, on a federal delivery, resulting in um, um, charge for, for the overdose death of a very close friend of hers. She was sentenced to five years in prison and spent nine months um, in uh, Multnomah's County Inverness Jail, where, which had uh, rampant drug use and awful food. Um, uh, and Morgan was moved to higher security level, uh, Dublin Federal uh, Correctional Institution in the Bay Area of California. We're nearly there, we're nearly, we're nearly there. Uh, but now today, Morgan is a full-time student. She's studying uh, and performing a wide variety of advocacy in her free time. And she's writing a book about these experiences uh, of drug policy, addiction, prison, and re-entry. And in February of 2020, she was appointed to serve as a commissioner on Oregon's Alcohol and Drug Policy Commission. Morgan, that is the longest introduction I've ever, ever given, but crikey, what a story. I think the first thing I want to say is, hi, welcome. Um, Thank you. How are you? I'm doing well, yeah. I, I apologize that my life story needs so much context. I'm not a quick intro. <laughs> You're certainly not, no. So where, whereabouts in America are you today? Are you in, in the USA? I'm not, actually. Uh, today I am in Tijuana, Mexico. Wow. I'm do we're doing a research project um, here looking for fentanyl in the heroin supply. Okay. That on the, the south side of the border. Okay. Essentially so how, predicting how fentanyl is that, that is home? moving west in the United States and is killing people. Uh, how far away are you from home, Morgan? Um, you know, I'm about 10 minutes from America, but I it's uh, it's about a 20-hour drive or a two and a half hour flight from my home. Okay. Okay. So Morgan, um, can you just help? Uh, our viewers uh, listen um, and understand a bit about yourself. What was what was your upbringing like as a child? Yeah, it was. I mean, I was a white middle class person because my mom was career Air Force. So my mom was always um, she was a health professionals recruiter in the military. But because she had that fairly unique job, I had a very fairly unique upbringing in that she was able to serve almost all of her time in the Air Force in the city of Portland. So we didn't have to do the 
base hopping thing that most military brats do. But my mom was gay. So my mom was a lesbian at a time when it was uh, illegal to be a lesbian in the military. And that really influenced me, I think, because I had to learn from a really young age to lie about my family structure. Okay. Um, But, you know, fairly middle standard middle class other than that aspect of being like a sperm donor baby with a gay mom before that was trendy um ah, okay i was, was going to ask about your father was your father around but you've you kind of explained that for us yeah so i did the 23 and me dna test when i got out of prison and i i found that we have about we i think the running count right now is 18 siblings they use the same sperm to to create 18 of us oh, and sure. counting uh, which is highly unethical and they're being sued. They're getting the pants sued off of them for doing yeah. that. Wow. <laughs> and, and you, and you talk about, you touch on that in your biography about the air force. Was it a pathway that you, you were happy to, to go down? Was, was it kind of, you thought, well, yeah, I'm, this is what I'd like to do. Or was there an element of pressure to do that? Oh, there was no pressure whatsoever. Uh, but it also wasn't what I grew up thinking I wanted to do. I grew up thinking I wanted to go to medical school and be a doctor. Um, but when I was 16, my mom had developed a gambling addiction and she ended up, um, getting fired from her job and we were cast into poverty for the first time in my life. And I ended up dropping out of high school. So I did not complete high school. Uh, I went back and got an adult high school diploma, uh, And it was when I was 19, I'd been out of high school then for three years. And I realized that I'd done nothing with my life. I'd just been partying and doing nonsense. Uh, Also, you know, using drugs recreationally, although I didn't tell the Air Force that when I joined. Um, And I just thought it was a way for me to find purpose for my life because I was feeling very lost. And I saw how much purpose it gave my mother. And... I wanted that. I wanted someone to tell me what to do. I knew that I needed some discipline in my life. And so I sort of put all my eggs in that basket and, and I just said, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to do career military. You know, I'm feeling lost, but here is the solution. Mm -hmm. And so for the year or so it took to actually leave for basic training, I was feeling very strong inside of myself. I was feeling like I had purpose and like I finally figured out my life. And then that did not, that did not pan out. No. Can I, can I ask, Morgan, uh, was there any faith element to your childhood at all? Was your, was your mum uh, a faithful uh, lady? Yeah, so my mother was raised uh, Catholic, including she went to Catholic high school all through graduation. Yeah. Um, and that, was, that made her be very conflicted because she was gay. And so she suffered prejudice and had to hide elements of who she was. This is a recurring theme in my mom's life. Um, and so I was baptized, okay. but never really attended church. No. Uh, she wanted to baptize me, you know, just on like a just in case, but my mom had lost most of her faith. And so I was not raised with faith other than just a sort of abstract Christian American concept. Yeah. Yeah. And, and can you recall that when you first started using recreational drugs, how, how old were you? 16. Okay. Cocaine. Um, why did you do that was it was it was it an escape or was it because others were doing it or so again this was right after that my mom's gambling addiction had got really bad and we were evicted and living in poverty um and i think it gave me some 
element of control over my life, or at least the illusion of control, because I was essentially a child and couldn't control any of these things going on around me. Um, I was at the mercy of my mother, who was at the time making very bad choices. Um, and I had always been an awkward, weird kid, very shy, painfully shy. And dr the drug subculture was very accepting. There was none of that competitive bullying crap that's very present in like American high schools. It was much like the stoners, everybody just like smoke weed and chill and everyone's welcome here. And I felt very comforted by that in my time of need. And drugs were exciting. It was fun. It was rebellious. It was, it was something I could do that was my own. Um, did you, did you ever contemplate um, it was maybe the wrong thing to do or did you ever contemplate a pathway that it might take you down? Oh no, never. I was very suicidal from the time I was 11. Um, and so I actively just wanted to die most days. And so because of that, I knew I would die young. It was just whether I was gonna die by my own hand or die in some other way. Gosh. And so also I, I had no long-term vision because I knew I was going to die young. So I didn't think of any long-term consequences because I did not think I would live long enough to experience them. Wow. That's, that's quite moving to hear that, you know, from 11. Yeah, I um, was a depressed kid. You know, I still, I still struggle with yeah. depression yeah. often. Um, but I was a very oh. depressed child. Yeah. It's again, I was a weird, shy, awkward kid who didn't make friends easily or well. I didn't feel like I belonged. Yeah. I had a conflicted home life. I couldn't be fully honest about what my home life was. It was, it was a mess. And so, you know, was I being beaten on the daily? No, of course not. I was never sexually abused. I was always provided for. I had the latest Nintendo. So in many ways, my childhood was privileged, but I um, was just left with mental health issues. Yeah. Well, it, if, you, if you're happy for me to ask, what age were you aware of your sexuality, Morgan? Late. Um, very late. I was bullied for being gay in high school before I knew that I was gay. And so I was, I got cyber bullied before that term existed. Someone hacked my MySpace, changed my orientation to lesbian and edited my pictures to make me look obese. And that was a very impactful experience on 15 year old Morgan uh, because I got into the habit of denying, I'm not gay, I'm not gay, I'm not gay. Yeah. And I repeated it so many times. I. I really started to believe it. And so then when I was 19 or 20, I started thinking something was wrong with me, that maybe I'm asexual, maybe I'm not supposed to be in a romantic relationship because I was trying you know, to be with men and it wasn't working. There was something not right. Yeah. Um, and so it wasn't until I was almost 21 that I was shown the light. Morgan, <laughs> I, I, I just want to just kind of hold your story a little bit there because um... You know, I, I think there are still lots of gay young teenagers out there who, who are probably feeling how you've just explained. Mm -hmm. what, would, what would your word of encouragement be to those kids at the minute who are going through that? Oh, I can't, I can't come out. I can't talk about it. I can't mm -hmm. be myself. What, what would you say, Morgan? Mm. You only owe a duty to yourself and your happiness 
and your happiness is contingent upon this you know being able to be fully honest but i will say there are some things i will never understand my mom being gay meant i never had to worry about rejection from my family and i know that is a lot of people's primary concern yeah and i i so i have no advice for that because i was so lucky in my upbringing that i i never have had to worry about that no no but for some people that that is exactly the the issue isn't it yeah yeah um, and so you, this, this sadly led to harder narcotics. Mm -hmm. How old were you when you started using the, some heavy, heavy stuff? 20, really. Like regularly using heavy drugs, I was 20. I had just yeah. returned uh, from the Air Force and also a, a bit prior to leaving for the Air Force. So 19, 20, right around that cusp is when I really stepped off the deep end. Morgan, as a, a 16, 17, 18 year old, did you did you see that pathway? Did you think this is the road I'm going? It's just a matter of time or did it creep up on you? Oh, it, it surprised me. It's like, you know, I listened to the rap songs and the, the full song was always there. You know, three verses are there. The first verse is fun. The second verse is turmoil. The third verse, you're in prison or dead. But it's like, I, I, what did I just listen to the first verse of the rap song and think, yeah, that's really cool. I want to do that. Ignoring the rest of the song because they were always in those lyrics. When I go back and listen to these party hip hop songs we were listening to when I was 18, 17, the clues who, were always there. Who are you listening to, Morgan? Tell me about those rappers. Oh, gosh. Uh, I mean, at the time it, we were listening to Hyphy, which was like Mac Dre and Keek the Sneak and um, all right. And now like Andre Nicotina, which is now I try to listen to it. I accidentally came up on my Spotify and it was so vulgar. I had to turn it off. Really? I can't believe I've I ever listened. I've to never it. heard of him. Uh, well, I've never heard of him. I'm 50, but I've got, I've got teenage kids. You know, I'm sure I'll go. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 You know, no, I think they're old now. They're not hip anymore, but at the okay. time that's what we were listening to. Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, the lyrics spoke heavily of drug use of drug dealing, but then always, almost always of being, like chased by the police, arrested, going to prison, doing time on the yard. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I ignored that part. Okay. I didn't think it would happen to me. No, and you, no went, one does. And you went for it. And, and when you went for it, Morgan, tell me about that, you know, that, that experience of doing really, what was it, heroin or? or, or heroin. Yeah. yeah, I still never thought I would end up in, in jail. I thought I might die, and I was always okay with that because my suicidality, that never dissipated. So, okay, I'm going to die a heroin addict. That's fine. I've always known I was going to die young. But I never thought I would be the one to end up in jail or prison because I did not commit crime. I didn't shoplift. I didn't, I didn't even litter. I went to work every day. Right. Um, and so I really never thought I would be the one. Uh, but then they started arresting me for, for, for a simple possession. Yeah. And giving me felony convictions for that. And then that just sort of started a cycle of incarceration that yeah. ended in my imprisonment. What, what I'd like to ask Morgan is when you're, when you're, um, when you're getting that buzz off heroin or, or any drug, does it, does it really seem a positive answer to the solutions, you know? So, you know, um, you know, it, because, because you feel it, it makes you feel better. Did you, do you see it as a positive? The next one will be a positive and it's not going to have a negative impact on my life. It's only going to be a positive solution. 
No. It, so heroin does work for what you want it to work for. That's why so many people use heroin. It's a very highly effective drug. It has severe negative consequences, but those negative consequences are distant and abstract. And the benefits they bring are immediate and tangible. So we, we ignore distant and abstract cons consequences for the immediate tangible benefits of that, the chemical feeling produced by opioids. Yeah. And when, when you're not feeling that, how are you feeling? With heroin, you get physical withdrawal, so it's terrible. So even if you wake up one day firmly convicted, I do not want to use drugs anymore, your body has other things in store for you, and you will be cast into agonizing uh, withdrawal. Yeah. And when you were using um, hard drugs, what was, what was the driving force? Was it that kind of escapism from the reality of life um was it was it still grief you know to lose your mom at such a young age and for you to be a young person what was it i mean i wish i could say that my heroin addiction ha mostly had to do with grief but i was a heroin addict for many years i was addicted for what four years prior to my mom's death and only addicted for six months after because then I was arrested. Um, it was, I had such emotional pain. I just couldn't navigate in the world. I just felt so bad. And often when I was sober, I felt very suicidal. And so before I had felonies, when I still owned a handgun, I would just pick it up and hold it to my temple and think this can all be over. Uh, and then I would think, okay, do I wanna shoot myself? Or do I just want to get high again? And luckily I chose option B. Yeah. And then my mom died and then there was no chance I was gonna get clean because what was much heavier than the, the grief was the guilt, was the fact that my mom died with me having been addicted for the last four years and being a total piece of shit, incompetent daughter and that put her through hell. And that I perhaps contributed to her death with her depression and her stress cycles because of my own drug addiction. And that I, there was nothing. Death is so permanent. I couldn't get a redo. There was no, let me tell her I love her one more time, you know? And so after she died, I wanted, I was done. I was like, okay, well, I, I'm done now. You know, I had one shot at life. I ruined it. And so then I started trying to intentionally overdose and I was topping up with lots of benzodiazepines and doing large amounts of heroin, trying to overdose. And I just couldn't, my tolerance had gotten so high, so extremely high uh, that I was protected from intentionally overdosing. Morgan, Morgan your honesty is, is, is deeply moving. I, I can, I'm shaking because it's so powerful, but what stopped you? So you talk about that drug use there and, and the overdose, what stopped you just jumping off a bridge or in front of a train? What was it? What was going on there? Yeah, so um, I'm an American, so I've always, I have, there's guns around first. So like <laughs> everyone has guns. So that was always closer. So it wasn't that I was gonna, so what stopped me from shooting myself? This is a great question. So I, I don't always know. 
uh, heroin feels really good. And I don't imagine a bullet tearing through my temple does. So it was always just a little bit more convenient for me to use heroin. But after Justin died, and I was told I was facing delivery resulting in death for his death, there was a three month gap between when I was told that and when they arrested me. Hmm. And it was in that gap that uh, I probably came the closest to killing myself. And I had laid out all my plan and I was ready and I was going to do it. And I just had some powerful voice tell me no, tell me no. What was that voice, Morgan? I don't know. No. I don't know. Okay. I've, uh, it was the same voice that kept me alive through a cocaine overdose one time when I was about to die and seizing mm. on the bathroom floor. And I heard a voice tell me, take a deep breath, calm down. You're not going to die here. And I just breathed deeply. And with every deep breath, the convulsion slowed to the, my heartbeat slowed. Yeah. And I laid there for several hours, but I didn't die of a cocaine overdose that night. Um, but then again, I didn't kill myself when the United States Marshals were looking for me when I was on the run, even knowing that I was gonna face 20 years in prison and that suicide was probably the most logical option in that mm -hmm. if we're being sincere. Um, but I just had some, f my, my friend's parents had taken me in they were, they're Mormon, they're LDS after my mom died. And I was a wreck and, and, you know, very addicted, very chaotic behaviors in life. Um, and they didn't care and they took me in and they loved me and they, they hugged me and they held me and they watched me cry. And they, they turned away when I would inject heroin and they let me live there. And it was in that moment that I also, you know, thought I would kill myself, but that I thought something told me, no, don't do it. And I didn't do it. And uh, what, a few days later, the United States Marshals came and took me away. And I went, you know, I didn't go kicking and screaming. I, I, I went calmly with the, with the Marshals. And this and was, because just, this was because Justin had died from the overdose. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, they took me away that day and I was gone for the next about four years. Wow, Morgan, what a, what a journey to this point. And so you get taken to, taken to prison? Jail first. Yeah. I was in jail for almost two years and then prison. It's, it's a distinction. Yeah. <laughs> and during that time before, you know, you kind of know, you said you thought you might be going to prison for 20 years. Mm -hmm. Was there any thoughts then of turning this round at that point? When, when, did, when, did, the, when did the switch come in your, in your mind saying, you know, this, this, I'm a big fan of a guy called Dave Garn Morgan. He's a lead singer of a band called Depeche Mode. Probably uh, you're a bit young for them, but he, he had a overdose, had a huge mm -hmm. drug problem. And he went right to the edge and then he came back and he's he's living clean and he has done for a long time. What was your epiphany moment, Morgan, that thought, I can't, my life can't carry on in this direction? Uh, it was after I'd been in jail for about a year and I was using drugs regularly in jail because I thought if I have to be in this terrible place, I might as well uh, purchase some hours of escape 
from the this environment <clears throat> yeah. that I'm being held captive in, thinking that that was a logical decision. But I was able to detect patterns in my own thought process and my own mental health coming around uh, the introduction of opioids into my bloodstream that made me a crazy person that did terrible things to me. It would feel like this intellectual logical decision. Yes, I'm going to buy a bit of heroin from this girl that just came in. And it would be fun for that eight hours or whatever. But then the next day I would wake up and I would have cravings, profound cravings. And then I would think me, calm little me, one of these one of these girls has heroin. I'm going to get it from them. If I have to shake them down in the bathroom, I'm going to get this. It, I want it and I want it now. And then I thought, holy shit, I'm a crazy person. I have, I, when I took the heroin, I was logical and, and reasonable. But after I take it, something switches inside of me and I no longer have control over my actions. I can no longer control that second use, that second day. It has now become impulsive. I have no self-control. Um, and so that was my epiphany moment that for me, I cannot ever, ever put opioids in my bloodstream because I lose myself. And it was sitting in jail, talking to the women around me that I realized just how privileged I had been. And I saw just bitter injustices all around me because everyone that I was with had been, is, was a survivor of sexual trauma and their, their drug use was mostly to deal with trauma and they were just being cycled in and out of jail in cycles of homelessness. And there I was with like a year of college education and a fairly good childhood. And I didn't belong in jail because I had this foundation of privilege. So I realized I had gone off the deep when I had options and the women around me, they just didn't have good options. No, they didn't make good choices because they didn't have any to choose from. No, no. And so it was, um, it was those dual components of me recognizing my privilege and seeing bitter injustice in the system that I wanted to change. And then also recognizing what drugs do to me on a profound level. So that, that's the foundation of my recovery. I found purpose for my life and I finally understood the true nature of my addiction. Yeah. I, th I, have, a, I have a close friend who's a pastor. We're in a different denomination of church, but he's uh... He's a recovering addict and his story is um, not the same as yours, obviously, but it's very similar. But it came, I think, reached that point where I cannot put any more into my system. And if I do, I go a certain way. Were you, were you, were you given help in prison to, to recover or did you have to seek that elsewhere? No, I mean, technically I did a thing that they were calling a drug treatment program, but that doesn't address any of the root causes of addiction. It's not addressing like your traumas or your lack of sense of belonging or lack of purpose in life, lack of direction or, yeah. you know, um, so you, you seek it on your own. And I was able to seek it because I had money on my books that my mom had, had left me when she died. And so I could make all those $3 and 15 cent phone calls and call all my friends and order all the books and read all the self-help books and do all the things. And yeah. Yeah. So you did it yourself. Yeah. If, if anyone, you know, finds recovery through incarceration, they did it themselves coincidentally while they were incarcerated, but no. incarceration itself saves no one. No, it's not designed to. No. 
For you, you learnt, you speak fluent Spanish, is that correct? And you learned that in prison? I, yes, wow. I did. There was nothing else better to do, understand. There was no college classes. There was no educational opportunities. But the prison, uh, that's I ended up why I'm in Tijuana right now. It's all related to the fact that I went to um, prison and it was all women. It was half of the prison or so was Mexican citizens who had United States tourist visas and would cross from here in Tijuana to San Diego um, in their cars and were caught with drugs hidden inside of their vehicles. And so what I was very surprised to find in an American prison was very few Americans. It was, it was Mexican citizens who had never lived in America, who often didn't speak English, had no desire to live in America. They weren't immigrants. They lived in Mexico and were caught with drugs hidden in their vehicle at the border checkpoint. Um, and so, yeah, my bunkies didn't always speak English, my cellmates. And, so, and I had some Spanish training from high school and I just built upon it and, and left speaking fluent. I guess that gained some respect among them, did it? The fact that you were, you they were teaching you, they, they would they became teachers, didn't they? Which is kind of um, quite a nice story of, of their own redemption in some ways. You know, they've they're in a, incarcerated themselves, but they've they managed to um, impart their 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 language and their knowledge upon you in such a way that you end up speaking fluent Spanish. Wow! Yeah, it was really cool. I would help them with their ESL homework and. And they would just speak to me in Spanish and show me songs and food and music and culture and novelas, you know, and watching the shows. And so it was a whole cultural immersion inside of an American federal prison, which is strange. But it was a it was a beautiful, very symbiotic relationship. And it kept my mind occupied, which is what I most needed at the time. Yeah. Morgan, this this 30 minutes has absolutely flown by. And, and I, I really should have we should have done an hour because your your story is is incredible. And. I really don't want to patronize you, but you are incredibly articulate and the way you express that in the, just in the short 30 minutes, if that's the right word, I don't know what, I don't know what a long 30 minutes is, but, <laughs> but the, the way you've expressed that, and I, but I really want to get to the, the point that you're doing well, aren't you now? You're doing well. And it is a story of recovery and it is a, and it is a horrendous journey that you've been through but where, where are you now you, you know I mean uh, I would be amazed if you didn't have kind of some kind of mental anguish about what's gone on and it doesn't go around the brain cells but you're in a pretty good place at the moment is that right at the moment yeah my life is excellent I um I've been performing advocacy essentially since the day of release and I've been getting very lucky I must say from the federal level all the way down um right time right place i the the conversation around addiction and criminal justice in america is changing and is changing rapidly right before my eyes um and people are listening to my message and you know i was able to volunteer on the campaign that changed the very law that tried to ruin my life and so with measure 110 very small amounts of drug possession have been decriminalized and I get to do federal advocacy with my United States senators. I get to serve on the Alcohol and Drug Policy Commission. Um, life is very good. I always have to reconcile the fact that my professional success today is contingent on the, pack, on the fact that 
one of my best friends overdosed and died. Yeah. And I don't always know what to make of that. But his mom, his mom loves that his memory is being honored and that people read his name and see his name. Yeah, Morgan, Morgan, I think that is the case as well. You can't change that, Morgan. That's happened. But you can you're, you you can ensure that the legacy is is a success and, and a joyful thing. And I've got so much admiration for you, Morgan. I mean, I've never met you before, and but I saw your story and I thought, wow, what a story. And you know, I'm sure you you you'd love nothing more for Justin to come back, but what would the circumstance, you know, how, you know, your life has taken this pathway. And I think, I, I didn't know Justin, but I guess he'd be very proud of you. I'm sure he would. I absolutely know he would. Yeah. Say that from my heart, Morgan, I know he would. And so, you know, I just want you to know that, uh, I, I, you know, what you said right at the beginning is you knew you were gonna live a short life. I hope that's changed. I really hope that's changed. It has. Now I get to agonize in the mirror about every wrinkle that was never supposed to happen. I, I was going to die young. What is this? I'm old now. <laughs> Wait till you get to 50, Morgan. I've got, <laughs> I've got more creases than the bed, honestly. But, yeah. So, Morgan, we're going to have to cut it there because we're right. out of time. But, you know, I'm, I'm going to keep in touch with you if that's all right, because I'm, I'm, I'm inspired by your story. And I really genuinely want to thank you for sharing that, you know, and finally, Morgan, if, if somebody's in a place of addiction now, just, just offer them perhaps a bit of hope if you could, before we go. Oh, there is so much hope for your future. And again, if you want to die because your addiction is so miserable, it's not that you want to die. It's that you want your life as you know it to end because you want to start a new better life and you can and there's there's so much hope they pass around statistics that most her people addicted to heroin are going to die in their addiction that is not true i assure you that all of my friends but one has found recovery yes three of them overdosed and died but there's about 30 that are now in recovery so the odds are in your favor yeah, that's wonderful, Morgan, because, you know, we're associated with people who are, who are living and dealing with addiction day in, day out. And I want to echo that we are seeing in our case, it's through faith, but there are other routes that people go. People do recover from addiction and, you, and you're a great, great role model for that. And you're a great advocate for that. And Morgan, I, I want to thank you so much. Thank you for your time. And we send our love from the north of England <laughs> and, and to you in, in, in Mexico. Thanks. Morgan. Uh, yes. <laughs> Bye.